We are combining the two lectures, lecture number nine, lecture number ten into one, the two strategies of the entrepreneurs. One is called the defensive strategy, the other the aggressive strategy. The first has to do with mostly horizontal arbitrage, the second with vertical arbitrage. We do this because we want to make room for an extra special session on the gold basis and cool basis, which is the domain of Sandeep. And that will take place tomorrow. Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. All right. So this is now the two strategies of the entrepreneur. We have already started discussing this yesterday. We talked very generally about arbitrage, which is the general form of human action, the human action of which Mises has spoken and wrote a book, his magnum opus, opus magnum, and we try to see all economic action in terms of arbitrage. And instead of saying that the price is the guiding star of the entrepreneur, we turn this around and say it is the spread of prices, which is in some cases spread, in many cases it's just the bid-ask spread, but it's much more general than that, because the entrepreneur has his eye on the landscape of all spreads and uses his insight or intuition or calculation, whatever he uses, to pick one which looks promising to him. And once he picked a spread, he will establish a straddle which corresponds to that particular spread. And the straddle means a long leg and short leg. In this case, this will be a vertical arbitrage, which has an input at a higher level and an output at the lower level. We visualize the input and output both as a basket of goods. In the case of the input, it's a basket of uh, producers' goods. 
and in the case of output basket of consumer goods. Now, as it has come out during the discussion, in that input basket, we also think that there are other factors of production, not just goods, which you can touch, but also such things as labor and capital and whatever it takes to go into production and do this as cost, we imagine is a part of the basket. So this, these concepts are very general and uh, we have to see it that way because only in this way will it make complete sense. Now this, this approach is very insightful because we can classify not only spreads and straddles but also the strategies of the entrepreneur which is his guiding star to achieve his goal. What is his goal? Well, generally speaking, he is attacking a spread which he found too wide, unreasonably wide to begin with, and he knows that as a result of his own activity, this spread <coughs> will be closed, gets narrower and narrower, and ultimately it will be so narrow that it's no longer promising. So then he has to do something about it. And there are two things he can do. One, to improve his chances of continuing work on this spread, or he just abandons the field and goes and finds another spread and starts his entrepreneurship somewhere else. Well, obviously, he will try to exploit the set, the spread for which he has already set up his operations, because it's costly to go into production. He has to uh, have facilities and so on. So before he abandons it, he would like to exploit more. So that is what I call defensive strategy, trying to squeeze more juice out of the existing facility by uh, uh, possibly widening the spread, which will promise more pure entrepreneurial profits for his operations. And this is also something I discussed yesterday, but I just remind you that this takes horizontal arbitrage. He has an input level and a lower output level, and there is a possibility of shopping around for various inputs, which will go into the input basket. He can try alternative inputs. These are producer goods which are uh, either cheaper or higher quality or in some way prom more promising. 
which if he makes a substitution, shifts his customer, use the expression, shift the customer, then the spread may, the vertical spread he is attacking may widen, and then he can continue production. So this is horizontal arbitrage. And that's one thing he can do. The other thing uh, he can do, and this is uh, interesting because uh, this uh, is the aspect of this whole process which was discovered last. The other things have been mentioned by earlier authors already. But it was Israel Kuzner who brought in that example of horizontal spread at the level of consumer goods. The idea is the same. It's substituting one consumer good by another one, which might appeal to the consumer more, either because of the price or because of the quality, mostly it will be quality. And uh, he will expect his, uh, his uh, profitability to last longer that way. So this is certainly under the heading of defensive strategy, it's another example of horizontal arbitrage, in a way surprising because this idea of manipulating the uh, output is not immediately obvious. We are talking about deliberately manipulating the output to make it more appealing to the consumer. Now there is a, an example, a numerical example, I'm referring you to lecture number nine, page three, the lower part of page three, which talks about eroding profitability of a certain entrepreneur who has a production plan and he is operating below full capacity, which is a sure sign of the squeeze on his profits, eroding profitability. And the entrepreneur is tempted to do variation in product quality. Complementing variation in price as a device to improve profitability. 
probably the word producer in this context is is better because he is concentrating on the production process. So the producer puts an alternative product on the market, say a higher quality addition X prime of X that could be sold at a higher price with only a minor increasing cost. You see, so this is something uh, which goes a little bit beyond. He's not competing by lowering the price, he's competing by increasing it. And that's possible because he gives something in exchange for the higher price, he gives uh, quality or some versatility which will make it more appealing to the consumer. And I think this is something new. I uh, think back of my childhood, which was a long time ago, as you can judge. Uh, then it's mostly, it was mostly price cutting. But as I got older, I realized that uh, producers sometimes increase the price, which looked to me as counterintuitive. I mean, how can they expect to sell more? if they have a higher sticker price. And then I realized that this it just appeals to a lot of consumers. Well, probably this comes with increasing uh, wealth, increasing uh, uh, well-being, and people like, especially car industry, you can notice this, that some stupid little design change with a hefty increase in price will appeal to the consumer. So we can't judge the consumer. The consumer is the ultimate uh, boss. He knows or she knows what uh, he or she wants and we certainly cannot criticize that choice, we just have to accept it. So, uh, based on that, there were a lot of successful uh, strategies, in, in this case again, uh, defensive strategy, which worked. So this example, numerical example, is worked out on page four. And I am assigning a homework for you, all of you. Just go through this and see that it makes sense. This example comes from Mises' Human Action, but he talked in there, he talks about a doctor, medical practitioner, who offers a certain treatment at a certain price to his patients. And uh, 
he uh, decides that he is not getting a fair return for his effort, and then he uh, changes something in the treatment and offers it at a higher price. So I thought about that example in Mises, and I said, perhaps if I rework the whole example, numerical example, in terms of a concrete uh, good which the producer is manufacturing and putting on the market and dis describe that slight change with a higher price, this would be uh, perhaps uh, equally convincing or even more convincing because after all the relationship between the doctor and his patient is a rather special relationship it's a personal, it's always a personal relationship, whereas selling a product is not. The producer hardly ever talks to the consumer. He may or may not, but certainly the numbers are much larger. So I offer this example, a worked numerical example, to you for whatever it is worth, and I'll be happy to return to it if there are any questions. If you read this and either don't understand something about that or you criticize it, we can find time to return to that. So I'm not going to continue this because I want you to do your homework before we come back to this, if we will. If everybody agrees, there's no point spending more time on it. But just in case somebody would like to take issue with this, uh, I'll be very happy to do that. So will you will you look at this in your free time and uh, and uh, come back with a criticism or comment, even comments? I I found this quite fascinating because. Uh, this goes beyond the conventional uh, tricks which producers use. This uh, shows a deeper insight and deeper understanding of the whole process. All right, let's uh, proceed and discuss the aggressive strategies of the producers. I already put it into context for you earlier. What happens again is that, going back to the history of it, there is this landscape of spreads. The entrepreneur picked one, which looked promising to me, to him. Set up his production facilities, which we simplify by referring to a straddle with its long and short legs, and look at it as a vertical uh, straddle. And he has been at it, and as a result, the spread got narrower. And then he did various fiddlings, both at the cons uh, producer's good level, substitution, horizontal arbitrage, and at the 
consumer goods level, the also horizontal arbitrage substituting one consumer good by another with slight modification which did not necessitate changing his vertical spread and he did it several times again and again and as predicted the spread narrowed and then widened a little narrowed again but ultimately the producer realized that that's it there is no more flower the, the, the bloom is off the flower garden there's not much he can do other than uh, abandon the original straddle which has worked very well for him but now partly because his own efforts partly because of competition on right and left he has squeezed the last drop of juice and it's time to move on yesterday I had opportunity to refer to different ways how he can move his straddle vertical straddle he can just abandon it scrap it sell it for scrap value the machinery and the buildings and the grounds everything sold for scrap value and set up a brand new straddle through first finding his new spread which is his new guiding star that's one thing he could do and probably a lot of them are doing it but he can do and this is a job all right he, and he, he just clean cut he gives it up the old one and sets up a brand new one but he could do it somewhat more continuously if he looks at the existing uh, straddle, the old straddle I call it, which he is going to liquidate, but not all at once. He is uh, looking at this as the old vertical straddle and he is going to set up a new vertical straddle and looks at it as a four-legged straddle and winds up operation uh, gradually and, and this has a reason of its own it's, it's appealing because he doesn't have to scrap something which is still working I mean he's not scrapping uh, as in the first example uh, facility but he is just phasing it out and as you know there is a difference so perhaps this is the better one we don't have to make a judgment about uh, one or the other method because it depends on the circumstances which we haven't specified so I just mentioned this because this is an interesting example this gradual shifting of the vertical straddle 
from the old to the new uh, because this is an example where the four legs of a straddle are each in a different market as the most general because all the previously mentioned four-legged saddles were special in some ways. Either the initial and terminal legs were in the same markets or uh, uh, some other specialty. But in this case, you have four different markets. Two in the producer goods and two in the consumer uh, goods market. And uh, you, you have that flexibility and the greater choices, the greater number of choices which are available. Now just to put it into context, I mentioned that another topic which is coming up in our series and uh, I will be doing it myself, is the uh, question of depreciation quotas. This refers to the cost of, of scrapping a production facility because you are setting up a new, whether you do it in one step or you do it gradually, it is a painful procedure and it is a costly procedure and uh, because of that you hear a lot of complaints. Producers complain that uh, they have what they call inconvertible capital which has been set up is referring to his vertical struggle and he can't afford to scrap the facility and set up a new because the scrap price will never cover except perhaps a small fraction of the cost of setting up the new vertical spread. I have no sympathy, for, as I will tell you in details, because that's not my topic here. I'm just putting it into context that I have no sympathy for these complaints of the producer because he has made a mistake much earlier when he did not set up his depreciation quotas properly. I don't believe in what he calls inconvertible capital. There is no such thing as inconvertible capital. There is only inadequate depreciation quota, but we'll come to that. So at this point, I'm just saying that the entrepreneur has got to be prepared for this step. Painful as it may be, it's coming. He should start out at the very beginning with the knowledge that sooner or later he has to move because that's in the nature of things. That's part of what we call the uh, uh, coordination process. We improve coordination by reducing the degree of disorder, 
even though new disorder springs up unexpectedly here and there, nevertheless, it's a progress. So, if he doesn't understand that, he has no business starting a business. He should not be in that entrepreneurship business or even production business. Although there is something he can do in the meantime, fiddle his input basket and output basket, but these are temporary measures. Ultimately, he will have to make the move. So ultimately, this aggressive strategy will have to overtake whatever else he's trying to do in a defensive posture. The underlying thought is that the pure entrepreneurial profit, as we have discussed it at length, is, is uh, volatile, it evaporates, some evaporates very quickly, some a little less quickly, but it does also evaporate. And as it does, then the uh, justification for the production is undermined. And at this point, a problem arises, and I would like to discuss this, and it's uh, also described Lecture 10, Aggressive Strategies. So here it is, I'm reading. To be sure, it is possible to continue production without the benefit of pure entrepreneurial profits, indefinitely. So that's the question we want to address. Does the disappearance of uh, uh, pure entrepreneurial profit uh, forces the entrepreneur to move on? And the answer is that not necessarily, but there is a price. So what is this price? The entrepreneur will have to pay a price for overstaying, let's use that word, overstaying his old vertical straddle, which has been working for him very well over the years, and he's reluctant to abandon it, and he says, well, perhaps either by luck or by uh, circumstance, uh, favorable circumstances, I can continue in that. And there are lots and lots of examples like this. Uh, of uh, various enterprises which uh, have, uh, have done a lot of good and just the very suggestion <clears throat> that it's time to abandon the field is uh, 
contradictory because the needs, the human needs or the consumers demand hasn't disappeared. And it's just the combination of circumstances which may suggest that you move on, you be a little more aggressive and go to a different vertical straddle if you want to be a successful entrepreneur. So let's assume that the proceeds from sales are sufficient to cover the cost of all inputs, resources which are put in the input basket, with the exception of one. And that sole exception is the return to capital invested. Now this this has to be covered. If that is not covered, then you are operating at, at a loss and you are doomed. Nothing will ever save you. But if you assume that the capital can no longer be amortized as called for by the original uh, schedule, then its value must be revised downwards so that an ins insufficient return can, can continue to amortize the reduced capital value at the current rate of interest. Well, here we are assuming that the rate of interest is constant and the Fed is not uh, <laughs> doing a wholesale attack on the producers, which uh, would happen in, and does happen in our day and age. This, you can imagine that we are working here under conditions of the gold standard. And uh, the interest rate is constant and the uh, proceeds from the sales, as I have just said, are sufficient to cover the cost and the only adjustment possible if you want to stay with your old uh, straddle, the only compromise you can make is you reduce the value of your capital so that in the future a smaller cash flow can uh, amortize that capital. So you are trying to make room for reduced uh, uh, revenue by making adjustment on the capital. This is possible. And as I say, a lot of uh, producers under the pressure of inertia, because that's really what's behind, you know, especially elderly people, uh, they don't like innovation, they don't like to move, they just would like to believe that what they have been successful in doing for uh, all the time when they were younger, they can continue doing until uh, the day they die. Well, it would be nice if this uh, uh, was possible, but as I have said, uh, again and again, uh, life is 
not kind to elderly people and uh, at the very least if they are entrepreneurs and they don't have the sufficient flexibility to adjust then uh, it's time to quit and uh, uh, be pensioned off but as I say there is a possibility for compromise and, and some of them take advantage of this they will put a new value on their working capital, a lower value, and it will be possible for them to continue in production based on a lower cash flow, and uh, as a result, the old struggle can continue. But let's just uh, examine a little more closely all the implications. So capital can no longer be amortized as called for by the original schedule. The capital value must be revised downwards so that the insufficient return can continue to amortize the reduced capital at the current rate of interest. The resulting capital losses are simply passed on to the shareholders. We are assuming that this is a joint stock company with shares outstanding and the shareholders uh, will have to bear the loss. This is happening all the time today. If you look around, you will say all, all the burden is shifted on the shoulder of the shareholders. Now, lots of companies are operating with losses and uh, they don't care because the uh, the uh, what's the word the sheeples uh, 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 the shareholders will just take the loss and that's very unfortunate but that's the way it is the shareholders annual meeting is pretty well meaningless in most of the cases I have attended some and I was just laughing at the stupid questions the shareholders uh, were asking of the management rather than being aggressive and charging them and even threatening them with firing because the shareholders on paper at least have the right to fire the whole management. But you see, uh, hardly, it hardly ever happens. So the outcome is that the management is managing the annual meeting and it happens as, as a production play. Every shareholder who says something will say exactly what is in the script. He cannot deviate one word from the script. And, uh, everything happens the way the management wants it to happen. So the resulting capital losses have to be borne by the shareholders and production can go on pretty well unchanged according to the original plan. And even the management can cancel the dividend. 
this is uh, happening very often if there is a bad quarter just cancel the dividend and take it or leave the shareholder has only one uh, escape he can sell the share the trouble is that the share by that time is selling at a pretty depressed level so the shareholder will hesitate whether he wants to take that loss and many of them won't because they hope that the enterprise can be turned around. Now, the question I originally raised and now want to answer is, is that a reasonable plan to settle for uh, the disappearance of the uh, of the pure entrepreneurial profit from the vertical spread and vertical uh, straddle and continue by cutting capital values and the answer to that question is related partly to the discussion we had uh, in the pre previous session because you are at the mercy of the rate of interest if the rate of interest is increasing then the capital is further cut so there is an endless pit and uh, you you are completely at the mercy of outside factors. You don't have that cushion which the pure entrepreneur profit has provided for you. As long as you have that cushion, you can do something in order to counter an adverse move, adverse move in the rate of interest. But once that cushion is gone, then you are going to be hit and hit again by any increase in the rate of interest. Now maybe this is no, uh, no danger <laughs> today under uh, uh, Chairman Bernanke, but uh, believe me, in the history of business for the past hundred years, the danger of an increase in interest rate was, uh, was ever present and uh, you couldn't, just couldn't ignore it. However, this discussion about the shoestring operation, or the, I say shoestring, but it could be a huge conglomerate such as General Motors or um, think of other giants, <coughs> shoestring in the sense of allowing pure entrepreneurial capital as a cushion just be pulled out from the structure, financial structure of the production, that this discussion gives us an insight. The greatest importance to us are those enterprises that can, thanks to alert, 
Entrepreneurship generate pure entrepreneurial profits consistently. And the emphasis on the word consistently, because sporadically, uh, most of the enterprises generate pure entrepreneurial profits. Uh, whether by design or by luck, doesn't matter, but uh, pure entrepreneurial profits will, will occur sporadically. But that's not the trick. It has to be consistent. And why? And this is, this is I think, really important. It's one thing to make profits sporadically, and it's quite another to make it consistently. Pure entrepreneurial profit, that cushion. As we have seen, the skill to make profit consistently is crucial. It is precisely this skill that shelters the shareholders from suffering capital losses. So, if you believe in capitalism, then you have to believe in protecting the interests of the shareholders. And sorry to say, today, hardly anybody, certainly the government is no friend of the shareholder, uh, which is not so surprising. But the management is sometimes an even worse enemy of the shareholder than the government. But by the way, the, the shareholder is hit twice with taxes. We have talked about taxes and we have an expert on taxation. The sh shareholder is hit by corporate taxes, which is, well, you can explain that it's necessary because the government provides the army and the navy and so on so that peaceful production can continue. But then the shareholders hit for the second time with what? Income. The income tax. So that's double taxation. It's incredible. It's so dest destructive to hit an individual on the same income twice. And, but that's it, there it is. But, you know, this was an issue. This has been an issue for more than a hundred years. Uh, well, actually it will be a hundred years in, in the United States. Uh, in 2013, which is, will be the 100th anniversary of the income tax, federal income tax. And it has been an issue there. I mean, economists of all walks of life were pointing it out that this is not just, this is not right. You have to decide at what level you are going to tax the revenue of a corporation. And that has to be the tax for that activity. But once you have taxed it at one level, it's, 
it's suicidal to tax it again at another level. But there's no, no avail. The same system is carried on. So we are coming to that very important aspect of pure entrepreneurial profits, which is not sufficiently recognized in the scholarly literature. The social role of pure entrepreneurial profit is to avoid capital loss inflicted. It doesn't matter on whom the loss is inflicted, but a loss is a loss, and ultimately it's a loss for society as well. So I want to focus on that issue, which is not sufficiently spelled out anywhere. Why or what is the ultimate consequence of this? In the modern world, most production takes place within the corporate framework. And most retirement pension plans depend on the integrity of the dividend income derived from the ownership of industrial shares. Just look at the pension funds in the most developed countries, the United States, Australia, uh, so much of Europe also, although in Europe I think the curse of socialism kept uh, uh, ahead at the greatest uh, rate. But even in Europe it's pretty obvious that the dividend income which the corporate the corporation pays is not a toy which can be used or even destroyed at the pleasure of the government. It is a vital source of income for the retired segment of the population. And if you run these shoestring corporations which say, okay, we go ahead and continue the st vertical straddles and production and so on on the basis of zero pure entrepreneurial profit. Because after all, it's uh, possible if, if there are capital losses uh, once in a while, we just cancel the dividend income. We just take it out from the shareholders. But it's not really the shareholders who are still young and strong and full of energy and can make up lost income. It's the retired segment of the population which they are hitting. Because the pension income, the integrity of the pension income depends vitally on that dividend which the corporations have to declare quarterly. And if you set yourself up in such a way that I don't care about, about uh, 
pure entrepreneurial profits, then you are really cutting the ground from underneath the pension funds. And ultimately, you will find that a growing population of retired people will be left up high and dry without uh, the wherewithals. They will literally not be able to pay their grocery bills, their rents, their uh, uh, electricity bill, and grocery, and the rest of it. So that's what is happening. And this is why the, the, this uh, question of aggressive strategies, vertical arbitrage, is very important. Because you do need that cushion. You do need pure entrepreneurial profit. And a lot of demagogic uh, agitation you hear nowadays uh, about so-called good corporate citizenship. What they mean by that is that corporations are fat as they are and therefore uh, we can squeeze them. We can squeeze them on the issue of the environment, we can squeeze them on the issue of poverty, on this, on that, on that, because they are fat anyhow. Well, this is a very stupid, very short-sighted policy. Uh, uh, you know, profits are vital in our social structure. And, and most people just don't see this, but I promise you when you, get a, when you will become a pensioner, as I am now, you will see this far more clearly than you see it now. When I was young, I didn't think in these terms because I said, well, if I lose this income, I just make more exertion somewhere else and make up for the loss. But this goes only so far when your medical bills start piling up. When, uh, when you feel that your uh, energy level is getting lower and, and there is one point in your life when you have to give up all uh, productive activities including writing and that's really the tragic tragedy of life, that even if you say, well, I don't care because I don't depend on income, I can always write. And if uh, my hand is, uh, is paralyzed, now there's still the computer, and now that you can convert words into... <laughs> so, the, the fact is that there are lots of examples, very tragic examples, productive-minded people who still have the ideas, but they just haven't got the energy to put it on paper. No technological improvements will change that, because this is something, a part of human nature. We, like an old engine run down, and at one point, will no longer perform, even though our mind may still produce good ideas. But you need energy to sit down, to concentrate, to, you know, to devote so many hours of the day 
to this kind of activity and they, they can. So we don't know how much very valuable thoughts have been lost through this because of that. And therefore all we can do is just to make it possible that we give a minimum level of comfort to the retired people so that if they still have productive ideas, they should be able to leave it and don't take it, these ideas with them to the grave because that will be loss of the society. So this uh, talk about good corporate citizenship is uh, is just talk because there's no substance to it. What it means is don't worry about profits or worry about profits less and worry about your civic duties more. This is garbage. There's no higher civic duty than making sure that the pension system operates as it was designed to operate. And it's not operating that way. I'm suggesting it to you that uh, probably as high a proportion as 75% of the pension funds are working on a non-existent capital. Either it's through government bailouts or uh, uh, shuffling bookkeeping tricks and trying to, but the capital is gone because under the fiat monetary system there is no way to maintain the integrity of uh, the capital, capital of the pension funds. So uh, one, one day people will wake up in the morning and realize that oh, the pensions not only have to cut back, but in, in a lot of cases cancelled altogether. It's gone, finished. We, the pension uh, funds have been milked dry and there is no way to generate more income from them. So profits, pure entrepreneurial profits, are indeed to be worried about in spite of this high uh, minded talk of civic duties and good corporate citizenship and so on. Because profits play an extremely important social role in protecting the source of income for the retired segment of the population. So I, I just wanted to put this idea right in the center. We are talking about aggressive strategies and vertical arbitrage. And the word ag aggressive strategies may strike a dissonant chord in you that why should corporations be aggressive? And, and I just want to make you interested in this aggressiveness. They are not enough aggressive today because they just settle. If there are losses, there are losses. As long as the management is allowed to continue in spite of the losses, and they are allowed to continue, why worry about it? You see? Because all the burden is put on, on the shareholders and indirectly on the pension funds because uh, remember when you say shareholders in most cases it's not an individual 
who is fat as it is and has all kinds of incomes from here and there and there, but it's the pension fund which is the shareholder. That's the way you should look at it. And therefore, aggressiveness is called for. The corporations should move their vertical straddles and pure entrepreneurial profits should be made, it should be used as a cushion and avoid losses at all costs because that's the only way to make sure that one day when you will have to retire and your uh, friends and even your children retire, there will be the funds to pay their pension income will be there. As it is, the funds are not there and there is cause for worry on that account. So with this I think I, I finished the topic both and uh, I, I would like to see your questions after the coffee break. Great. Come back in half. Let's, uh, let's open the floor to any questions. Um, and uh, as, a, as a little addendum, there are, there are free immediate taxes that you might have to pay because if you sell your shares, you'd have to pay a capital gains tax. Uh, that is assuming that you've got a profit on them. <laughs> and those capital gains are illusory because they are due to the uh, yes uh, the setup of the monetary, monetary system. system. They are not real profits. Not real profits. It's, it's equivalent to uh, when the Romans debased their currency. They, 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 they hung the, uh, the threat of execution on any shopkeepers who uh, put up their prices. So you can't really do that in uh, today's day and age. So you tax it instead. Well, the Shah did it. The Shah. The Shah did it back in 1978. Of Iran. Yeah. Well, we know what happened there. <laughs> we know what happened there. So questions. Well, I have a question, um, but it's I can't. I was hoping someone else would ask a question so I can <laughs> think about it. It's about pension funds. Um, I think I really get this uh, disequilibrium theory and, and uh, important role of the entrepreneur and the arbitrage that goes on all the time uh, at both producer and consumer levels. Um, but let's take the pension fund as a business. That's not appropriate, but uh, where's the spread there? Um, you have the employees who are the consumers, members of the plan. You have the uh, employer who's the sponsor of the plan. Uh, I'm just trying to, if maybe if, if I'm prompting you to Think of something, Professor Fillin, because 
I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but pension funds are in a mess. Right now. Right now. Uh, because obligations are seriously underfunded, because investments have not been good investments, or because actuaries have been too optimistic about future returns, and so to catch up and fund the unfunded liabilities, more risk is taken, and so it's all a mess. And because you, um, you brought in pension funds <laughs> in your uh, aggressive strategy of uh, uh, from a producer point of view. You linked in the necessity of the producing company to generate income in order to be able to continue to fund the pension plan. I think that was your, in this context, um, your point of view of bringing the pension plans. Well, the, the, dividend, the dividend should not be cancelled. No, no, okay. The dividend, the dividend or that, the dividend that the pension fund gets from its investments in various producing companies that it owns shares and should not produce. Um, okay. But if you look at the pension fund in isolation, is there, there's no spread there, right? There is no spread. Well, I would answer your question looking at the two extremes. The one extreme is all pensions in a country are funded by the government and the government collects taxes and so on and so forth. For instance, that's You're talking public pensions, not private. All pensions in this country, in Hungary, oh, well, since uh, 1990, there are some private pension funds too, but during the communist system, there was only one pension fund in this country and in all the other, in Soviet Union, in other satellite countries, and that was in the hands of the government. The government taxed, uh, collected all the taxes, and out of this, it guaranteed the pensions. That's one extreme, or let's just say a centralized pension fund, whether it's government or private. On the other hand, the other end of the spectrum, you might say that each company has its own pension fund. So this is uh, a fragmented system. I don't believe in either for very good reasons, and I don't think I have to go into this, because if you think about this, you will come up with the counter-argument yourself. What I believe in is that the pension fund industry, if you want to call it that, should be structured very much like the insurance industry is structured. It's a, a, a company with a capital, it has to be well capitalized, and then it has revenues and it has outlays, and then it will set up its books to make uh, the, the proper balance exists and the uh, obligations to pay out the pensions will always be properly balanced by revenues. 
and revenues are generated by investing in, in uh, industrial shares or financial shares, various enterprises. So once that's the case, that a, a medium-sized pension fund will pay the pension of rather large, but not the whole population, the retired population, then you have all the paraphernalia of arbitrage, investment, profit, pure entrepreneur, and so on and so forth. So this will be a, an independent business, this pension fund. I don't want to merge it necessarily with an existing insurance company because really insurance is one type of business and pension fund is another. An insurance company is facing contingent liabilities which are unpredictable and you have to bring in uh, probability and statistics and what, but pensions are <laughs> clear-cut. You know how old the people are who are paying into the pension and so on and so forth. So uh, I would separate them. I think it's useful. And uh, look at, but look at the pension funds industry as a business. Well, then, then you are set up for, for your arbitrage, for your shifting uh, straddles and all the rest of it. Just think of it, think it over. That really, once you adopt a business model for the pension industry, then you can reap all the benefits of, of this, what we talked about, spreads and straddles and, and all the rest. It's a homework for me to take it back with you to New Zealand. And <laughs> I've only worked in the pension industry 27 years. <laughs> yeah, so I don't have to tell. But you know more about it than I do. Your business, whereas it's not the way it works. No? No. What happened? You have captive markets. Hmm? In the pension industry, you have captive markets. If you're the state, it's your population. If it's a private, it's your employees. You, you don't, you don't. You yeah, but that's only if each each corporation has its own pension yeah. fund. But if the corporation can shop around, then yeah, well, that's so what I mean. That's not how the industry is. No. that's not. Yeah, I have to rethink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No. That, if that that would assume portability. That would assume that there was portability. Of your oh, well, so you could, as a member, take your accrued, funded, paid, or provided for today retirement basket of uh, money and go somewhere else where it's better managed. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure. Well, there are two kinds of uh, portability. One is when the individual pensioner is in full charge and he could collect his his uh, nest egg of capital yeah, and, and take it where he likes or even invest it for himself. 
That I don't think would work, uh, certainly not on the present monetary system, which is based on hidden inflation and uh, stealing from the savers. That's what it's based on. All the claims of the present system for contributing to progress is based on stealing from the savers. And, and they are partly, of course, the pensioners or those who expect to collect pension when they get older, but also those who save for the education of their children or uh, because they want to go into business at a later time in their life or something like that. Uh, they are being plundered day in and day out by this system. There's no saving grace. It's a rotten system. It's based on hacking away at the roots which nourishes society, the savings, you know. So I, I don't really advocate portability for the individual. This would be a very tricky problem, but only when you have a firmly established gold standard. Then perhaps you could do this. The best you can hope for under the present system is that the corporations which collect the pension contribution from employees have a, bar a real bargaining power and they go to the various pension funds which are run as business in competition in competition with one another and then strikes the best deal. <coughs> the corporation would say look we have so many employees we have such a cash flow coming in and we demand this and this and this if we give the contract to you. And this contract is not forever, it's for a definite period of time. And then we review it, and if you don't live up to our expectation, we reserve the right to take away the pension from you and give it to yeah. somebody else. That, that is the best hope, I think. The, the, the closest uh, to that that currently goes on in the industry is that instead of taking the, the pension arrangement away from one provider to another, it takes the fund management, <laughs> the investment management of yeah. the assets away from one to the other. Yeah. But, yeah. but the liabilities are not actually contracted out, you see. <laughs> so that's why it's in a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess. And that's very, very unfortunate because very few people realize how bad it is and how fragile the whole pension system is. And uh, sometimes you ask the question, is the government-run plan worse or this uh, private plan which is based on that uh, kind of fiddling which you have just described? Uh, Canada, which is the country where I'm drawing my own pension from, is uh, on the face of it looks good because it's uh, it's uh, not uh, centralized in the sense that the federal government 
controls it. It doesn't. It's uh, the provinces control it to a large extent. But even then, individual universities, for instance, which is my own interest because I am drawing a pension from such a university, it has the right to cancel the contract with one uh, provider and going to another. And you would expect that this works, and I know it doesn't, because I've been on pension committee and I, I know what, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> if you come up with a good idea, it's going to be voted down, and it's going to be voted down by your colleagues, because they're bombarded by <coughs> the providers with gimmicks, and they fall for, people do fall for gimmicks, you know. For instance, they, uh, uh, because the, uh, the uh, health extra, they put, the Canada is uh, working on the basis of socialized medicine, but as an upper layer, you can put in a private. So for, for those medical services which the government plan doesn't provide, you can have an extra layer of, of uh, insurance. And they come up with gimmicks, completely worthless, uh, you know, uh, inducements which people fall for. Well, I, I can't think of an example. For instance, I, I've been using uh, orthopedic shoes for some 20 years. And I don't really need them. I'm just... Uh, taking advantage of it because it's there and I have the right to demand a new pair of orthopedic shoes every year. And, and why is that? Because at the time when they decided what benefits to include in the package, there were two lame members of the committee who voted for that benefit because they personally benefited from orthopedic shoes. So it's there. They are long gone, they are dead, but the <laughs> provision is there and people uh, will just take it. I mean, uh, you know, but they have to pay for it. And so, um, you know, uh, there are all kinds of reasons why uh, this is a mess and, and really only a radical reform would, uh, would succeed. And I'm not very optimistic about this. And uh, you know, the, the, you could say a few words about this. Tell me, how is it that the actuarial profession is so blind to the problem? They, they I mean, I don't think they're blind, Professor, to the problem. Well, they're not talking about it. Uh, well, they, uh, they may not be talking about it publicly. Uh, you know, after all, the concept of insurance, the concept of putting money aside for older days, or transferring the risk of outliving your savings by buying an annuity and all those ideas are came from actuaries. And, but where I think um, 
things started to fail, fall down, is, is this, uh, this uh, what's the word, the socialism of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, trying to, you know, make people believe that they don't really have to save to get a pension. Yeah. <laughs> the state will look after you because there's uh, general taxation and things like that. And concepts, actually, is a, a whole range of different ways of funding, you know, providing for and advance future obligations. And some are more rigorous than others. In the private sector, generally, the approach will be more rigorous. But in the public sector, it's generally called pay as you go. Uh, pay as you go. Pay as you go, which means, you know, it's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> <laughs> Unfunded. Yeah. It means that, uh, you know, there's money coming in all the time, but there's money coming out, and if the money coming in stopped, it would take months before there's no money left to pay out. So there's no reserves, you know, there's no meaningful reserves. So, so the public system generally is... Um, is, is, is built on the belief that you have a, a, a growing population. It's based on the belief that uh, people don't live longer and longer and longer. <laughs> or, or at least you adjust your retirement age from uh, 65 to 68 to 70 to 75, you know? You don't leave it at 65. Um, and all those things. So, but uh, rather than being, maybe also has to be said that few actuaries are involved in politics. And, uh, yeah, that's another thing. That, that, would, that would probably have helped a lot. The lawyers, yeah. 90% of yeah, yeah. lawyers but and the <laughs> Well, even the legal doctors. Yeah, there's no money in it, you see? <laughs> no money in it. It's ridiculous, but... Uh, but how come that there's money in it for a lawyer who is also as greedy as anybody else? Well, a lawyer has less integrity. Ah! <laughs> You put generally speaking. Generally speaking. A lawyer that goes into politics. A lawyer that goes into politics. Anyway, that's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, they go, they go into politics to get the immunity and the impunity. Yes. And all the rest will have to do and be careful. Well, you need lawyers to, to, to write 2,000-page uh, laws, you know. <laughs> Actuaries couldn't be bothered with that. <laughs> well, further questions. Let's not make it a dialogue. Let's make yes. it a public debate. somebody from the street, an average person not interested in economics, what is wrong with our monetary system or how do you, how do you get him to be interested in what is happening? It's not easy for <laughs> young people nowadays who have never seen gold coin in circulation. I am not old enough because 
I was born in 1932, and as you know, Roosevelt pulled gold coins out of not only circulation, but out of the pockets of everybody in the United States. But before 1933, gold coins were in actual circulation, not perhaps when you bought groceries, but when you bought a house or a big ticket item, gold coins did play a role because the bank had to have a reputation. Well, you paid with a check, of course, you didn't buy a car with gold coins, but you drew your check on a bank, and if the bank did not have the reputation of paying without any question in gold, then the car dealership would say, sorry, can you draw a check on another bank? This was the case. Well, anyhow, the point is that gold coins in circulation have a tremendous educational value, you know, because you would see, and that's not from experience, because I just said I was born too late for that, but I heard stories from my parents and grandparents who have actually seen gold coins in circulation. And this is like life blood. Uh, you know, you have blood tests, and that gives you a tremendous amount of information about the health of your system. And that's exactly the same with the gold coin circulation. If there are any hiccups, if there are any uh, blockages or, or something, or too much credit, the gold coin circulation will give you an advance warning. And, and therefore, we just don't have any kind of experience in society which will convince you that a healthy blood circulation in the economy <coughs> means gold coin circulation. You know, we have, uh, we have eliminated all the white blood cells which fight the disease from circulation. The circulation of death, what makes up circulation, must have these disease-fighting white blood cells. Red cells is not enough. I mean, that we have red cells. The oxygen is being carried because the system is still working, right? But it's all.